0: I'm Brian Hyatt. This is Rolling Stone Music Now. Getty Lee, frontman and bassist of the great Canadian band Rush, just released an autobiography, My F in Life. I sat down with Getty in a New York hotel room to talk about the F Life in question, from his upbringing as a child of two Holocaust survivors, to his early influences, to the rise of Rush and more. And of course, the incredible drummer of Rush, Neil Peart, died in 2020 after a long and very private battle with cancer. In the final part of this interview, Geddy goes into the most detail ever regarding his thoughts on the possible future of his collaboration with guitarist Alex Lifeson, whether it's called Rush or not. Rush fans will definitely want to hear that part. But here's my conversation with Geddy Lee. I wanted to thank you for trusting me with the Neil story about his uh, last year's. Very emotional to do, but it, the world seemed to appreciate it. So. I think
1: it was an easy decision, really, because I think the world really needed to hear something. The world of Rush fans needed to hear something about that whole thing. It's, I think, And I think, in a way, why it's so cathartic for some fans just to hear me talk about what went on behind the scenes there, because... They had this guy they loved and admired, and then he was gone, and there was no real explanation as to what had gone on from August first of 2015 to the end.
0: It was intense to do, but I'm very glad we did it. But moving on to the subject at hand, you've written a wonderful book, and congratulations on it. And there's some central sort of psychological insights that you had about yourself, and that we can take away from. You were in this emotional pressure cooker through your childhood and especially after the passing of your dad. You were 12 years old. Yeah, You were just getting into music and thinking about being cool and all that stuff. And all that was, in addition to the loss of your dad alone, which is life-shattering, life-changing, everything else was taken away from you because of the, the mourning process. Yeah. Because you were following Orthodox Jewish rules at the time, you weren't listening to music during that time and that was what year
1: he passed away in october of 65
0: so 1965 pretty big year for rock music (laughs) and bass guitars
1: as it happens
0: you missed a lot of it You miss a lot yeah yeah. and then you came out of this you you had to go to to temple
1: three times a day was it i went twice a day but first I, i did morning services And then I got dropped off at the bus stop and took the bus to school. And then at the end of the day, towards the late afternoon, I was taken to afternoon services and to evening services. So you do the afternoon and and evening prayers, one after the other. That happens. uh, And then so I'd be home for supper kind of thing.
0: So you almost took on a full-time job of grieving.
1: Yeah, well, that was the role, right? That was my duty. And I didn't, part of me was numb through it all because I'd lost my dad, and all of a sudden these other adults were in my life, like this gentleman, Max, who, who took it upon himself to take me to synagogue every day. So I was passed around by various adults, and I was learning how to do this thing that meant everything to my mother for me to do, so I did it. And I wasn't rebellious at that time, but as the 11 months proceeded, I started to get rebellious because I was really feeling the weight of everything that I was alienated from, like the normalcy of being an adolescent just about to turn into a teenager. And around the time of my birthday, which would have been six, eight, seven months after he died at my bar mitzvah, After that, I started to be more defiant. And I did this trip that I think I talk about in the book. I can't recall. We went to Detroit. Yeah. After my bar mitzvah, I split with my cousins to go to Detroit. And they were the cool cousins at the time. And and so I started, I used my bar mitzvah money to buy Beetle boots and be cool. So that was the start of my rebellion. And I think when I finally finished that duty, I was bound and determined to, to. get as far away from that grief as I could.
0: Someone could say you've spent your whole life making enough noise to fill the silence of that year.
1: Well said, sir. You should be a writer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then on top of that, you were steeped in the sort of horrors of the Holocaust and World War II, thanks to your mother. And there are, for people who've experienced something like that, there there, there are many types of people, but it, roughly speaking, there's people who never speak about it, which was your father. Yeah. There's people who, who do speak about it. And your mother did speak about it to to a degree that you said that was perhaps
1: damaging. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, perhaps traumatizing. A lot. Yeah, yeah. You have to remember that all of my parents' social life involved their family, all of which were survivors. So it was a fairly normal thing to hear them talking about the war. they didn't dwell on it if they were having a discussion or whatever you couldn't help but hear it and they all had tattoos they were all part of this club this survivors group and so it it didn't seem abnormal at the time and so when i made those comments about looking back of course it was abnormal It it was probably traumatizing to me but it felt like this is just my family so i would it was Absolutely, I would lie in bed and fantasize about killing Hitler. That's not normal for a 12-year-old boy or 11-year-old boy at the time. I don't know how old I was when that first started. She talked about those things ever since we were very small. And they had photos and things that they had saved. and They were macabre, in a way, and spooky, to look at some of those photos from the old world and the world they had left behind. Yeah, it was... But talking to other children of survivors, it was their normal, too. So that's why I think there are groups of children of survivors that have written books, obviously, and they're bonded in a certain way.
0: Rock music, nothing could have been further removed from that that history, from what had become a sad house. It was fresh and new and as new world as Uh, anything could be.
1: Yeah, it absolutely was. It was such a great escape for me. And I don't think I realized it at the time. I think I was instinctively running, instinctively running towards the light. And I am amazed at myself, really, considering I always thought I was so shy and reserved, but I could not have been. And I went out to seek new friends. I made new friends. Shy, shy reserved kids don't do that. And so I connected with people that couldn't have been more different. And very few of them were Jewish. They accepted me, but of course, always with the quotations around, he's a Jew, but he's okay, which I just took. And I hate myself for just taking it and not saying, hey, fuck you. But I didn't have those feelings. I was still looking for myself. And I wanted so badly to be accepted in a group that was as far removed from my family or my growing up experience as possible. And these people, I thought, I can endure this because they're going to give me something I need, which is a new peer group, a sense of coolness about myself. Maybe they would help me find other people that love music like I did. So that was a sacrifice I made. I turned a blind eye to it. I shut myself off to that kind of tokenism. I guess that's what you'd call it. But Even Nancy used to introduce me like that in the early days. Wow. But that was their view of these Jewish kids that had moved into their their turf,
0: your poor grandmother, who had survived all these horrors, found a new horror that she just could not... <laughs> she,
1: couldn't, she couldn't bear it. I will never forget. Playing a song, and all of a sudden, my grandmother was in the... the where we had their basement, there was another kitchen in the basement. That's the one my grandmother tended to use, because her room was not far from there. And she was just shouting all kinds of stuff in Yiddish and in Polish and... All of a sudden I see a knife come sliding along the floor and I'm going, my God, is she throwing knives at us? It's just unbelievable. I feel very bad about that. Talking about it as an adult now and looking back, poor woman, what she survived only to have to deal with this, that she could not possibly understand, that she could not possibly enjoy in any way. It was just as if I was crazy, and I brought crazy people into my house.
0: You had this insight, which I thought was really interesting, is based on all this, it's no wonder that when you open your mouth to sing, it came out as a shriek.
1: Yeah, and I realized that recently, really. I don't know why I was slow in figuring that out, but really it took me watching that film, Coda, to make me connect with that. And my friend Ben had always used to say he's a child of survivors, too. Ben Mink, I'm talking about. And he used to say, yeah, all my guitar solos are me answering my mother who's screaming at me to clean up my room, you know? So (laughs) (laughs) that idea was not a foreign idea, but yet I never connected it to my experience until pretty recently, but it does make sense.
0: You picked up the bass guitar in the standard fashion that people picked up the bass back then, which is originally we were going to play... A guitar uh, and then no one wanted to play the bass they needed a bass player and you're like "Ah, eh, I'll, I'll play that it's yeah. a weird thing it's just how that goes back then
1: <laughs> yeah and um, bass players aren't born they're they're made <laughs> you know they're pressured uh, it wasn't my choice to be a bass player but i accepted it because i wanted to make music and i thought oh okay i'll be the bass player that's interesting i, I need a bass and so uh, back to my mom to beg her for 35 bucks And she kept acquiescing. She gave me the 35 bucks. I don't know what she must have been thinking. Maybe she thought it would keep me out of trouble. But I fear she worried more that it would get me in trouble. (laughs) Because people that were making this kind of music took drugs. And she didn't want me to get involved with drugs. If she only knew. (laughs) (laughs) Was it
0: ever hard to even hear the bass uh, when you were listening to records and trying to pick out parts?
1: You could hear them. In my car, when we were going to the store, I was listening to a lot of Motown Back then, that was on the radio all the time. The bass lines were really up front. Jamerson's Parts and Memphis Soul Stew and all that kind of stuff, Duck Dunn and You could hear those guys because the bass lines really moved the song. They really had a lot to do and contained a lot of melody, too. My Girl, songs like that. And at home, whatever crappy system I had at the time, I could hear the bass fine. I couldn't hear my guitar very well until I got an amp, but I figured out if you lean your the bout of your bass on an empty piece of furniture, it reverberates through that and becomes a sound chamber, so I could hear my my bass better if I was leaning on the drawer in my room before I had an amp. And if I played the record low enough, I could play along.
0: And it helps explain how fierce your determination was to do this, to the point where you dropped out of high school and all that. Pretty quickly, it was evident that you could do this. You were learning this stuff, you nailed it, you Mm. were there. It was kind of natural.
1: It was. Early on, I said, okay. I never really had found anything I was good at until that time. But I could do this thing. I could play by ear. That was such a great feeling. It made me feel real. It made me feel like I have... It gave me a direction, really. It gave me a direction at a time where I had zero direction. And so I just just went towards it. I just grabbed it. I said, okay, I can do this. I want to do this. It's making me feel good. And you know, and that guy would say, I bet you can't figure out 2120 South Michigan Avenue. And I go, yeah, let's see. And I could. And that made me feel great. So that set me on the road. And I didn't look back. Really, I never looked back.
0: You said that early conversations with people like Alex were about music were who's fastest that conversation which i think was all musicians but it does seem yeah. like there was always a subset of musicians who gravitated harder towards that stuff and i think from the beginning perhaps that was you and that was alex
1: yeah it was there are other musicians that were more purist musicians they were schoolyard friends they weren't really musicians but they would argue jimmy page man he just steals all his parts from the old blues guys and we were like no wasn't the same it's not the same. He's amplifying it. He's psychedelicizing it. But speed meant a lot to us because it showed prowess. And that, that was important to my little group of players. I know it was to Al. It certainly was to me. And bass players didn't have to be fast. The ones I loved really got around the neck pretty well, Jack Bruce more than any. And I remember seeing them live and I just was amazed by him. And he really inspired me really a lot in the earliest days.
0: There's some other interesting early influences. There's certain bands that slightly younger fans who picked up on some of this secondhand weren't around for the 60s. Some things they missed, for example, Rhinoceros, which is re- a really cool band. I think I learned about them because Bruce Springsteen was talking about them as loving them. Really? At the time Because he, he had a, a band called Steel Mill that was much more like Chops a Pop and in the yeah. late, before he was Bruce Springsteen. And that was, so if there's a conversion, it, it was there. So he was just talking about how that was an album that people forgot about. I love that Rhinoceros album. And, mm-hmm. and that's, I think Apricot Brandy was the one that's you right. liked.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That was the one. And I think I saw them. There wow. Was, there was a venue in Toronto that was only around for a short period of time. And it was turned into, I think, a a market or something like that. But I saw a few bands there. I saw, oh, was that great? I think I saw Beck Bogart and Apathy there. I think they played there. I think Rhinoceros played there. Um, A couple of the ones that were not huge, but could play to a couple thousand people if you jammed them in there. They were a big, that whole blue-eyed soul thing that Rhinoceros represented. And they were really influential. If you could play Apricot Brandy, you were cool. Especially <laughs> guitar players, you know that ding, 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 that whole riff. Everybody jammed to that.
0: And then you mentioned it was earlier, but you mentioned uh, a Holly song you particularly loved, "Payback with Interest." Yeah, <laughs> which is it's interesting to listen to that because even and it, it's not. I don't think it's Graham Nash. On, on, it's Alan Clark, I think, on vocals on that. I think
1: I don't remember. Yeah,
0: that. but anyway, the vocals are not entirely out of the Getty Lee thing. It's interesting to listen to it, is it? That, that was yeah. one of the first songs you, you really gravitated yeah, for. Yeah,
1: I never made that connection, but uh, yeah, I loved it. And uh, it was one of those records, I can't remember, I probably got it for free through my mum at her store or something like that. And so obviously I got to listen to those records more than others, because I don't think I got turned on to the Hollies from, I think I fell into them through that obviously getting records was not easy. We didn't have much money. And so you had to save your pennies up and get a single. I got a lot of singles back then because I couldn't afford the albums. But when my mom started distributing kind of cutouts, she got, she made some deal with some wholesaler, bought a bunch of cutouts. They had the punch hole in in it and she would sell them at a discount because that was her store. It was a discount store. And I remember taking a lot of records home there that I would find and go, oh, this looks cool. Sometimes you just take them home because of the cover. You think this this could be cool. I think that's how I got Holly's record, but I'm not 100% sure.
0: As far as vocal influences, you also mentioned Steve Marriott on, and with Humble Pie and that, that live record at the Fillmore. I don't need no
1: doctor. I loved his voice. Really, my voice was really akin to that, or at least where I went sometimes with Rush, because in the early Rush we were blues-based as well, and so it was singing, but it was shouty, bluesy singing. Didn't require a ton of melody, but a lot of energy.
0: Do you remember first getting on a microphone with a PA system and and really going for it?
1: I don't really, because all the early PA systems were so crappy, <laughs> and we played at the Coffin. The little drop-in center we used to play every Friday. We didn't even have a mic stand, so we used to tape the mic to a lamp. And uh, we had this little PA system. <laughs> but I never really got that sense of power until we were much more established and had a proper PA system that we used to rent and until we could afford to buy it if we ever could afford to buy it took a long time to be able to afford gear.
0: I guess what I'm wondering is if there was a moment when Alex or somebody else, when you went for the high notes and they said, holy shit, like we've got something here.
1: I I don't know. I think it just, my voice just, it just went with the flow. And we were already listening to bands like Zepp and Humble Pie. And so that was normal. I don't think those guys saw my voice as extraordinarily high or anything. It just was part of what was going on. We were all trying to be Led Zeppelin. Yeah, I don't recall anyone remarking on my voice as being unusual until people started criticizing us more publicly and saying, I got a weird voice.
0: It's interesting that John Rutzi, the original drummer of Rush, what I put together from the book is that in addition to the incident of you being fired from the band, which we now know was because of John, and another time when he got someone else in the band, he was really focused on, on style and looks. A uh, very unrush,
1: yeah, thing. No. Really, he definitely did. He all of a sudden it was like overnight. Alex and I started noticing that he started he changed his haircut, and you can see that in the early publicity shots. You can see he's got just long hair, and then suddenly it's a mod shape to it, and it's a bit of a shag thing going on. And then he started buying velvet pants, and and then. He showed up at a gig once wearing all kinds of sequin gear. And it was like, oh, whoa. So then we had to catch up to him. And Al and I didn't really have a natural flair for it. But we said, yeah, okay, this is going to be the thing. We're going to be a glitter band now. And I learned how to put studs in my jeans. And I would sit there at home (laughs) actually putting studs and sequins on my clothes. Nancy would, uh, when I was dating her, she would find me these really feminine kind of (laughs) tops. Which, I know, looking back seems just ludicrous. (laughs) (laughs)
0: That does not uh, seem right to me. (laughs) That's pretty funny. That seems very wrong to me.
1: When I look at those pictures, they're very cringy. Finding ones that really didn't make me sick to my stomach to look at was very hard, (laughs) so I picked the ones that made me cringe the least to put in the book.
0: I know that by the time that Rutsi was gone and you, you held the auditions that led to Neil, you and Alex were already pushing towards Prague and weird time signatures. Was there sort of a moment of Prague awakening between those albums before Neil arrived, or was it just more of a gradual
1: thing? For me, The Awakening was listening to Time in a Word. Being introduced to the bass playing of Chris Squire and i had already been into genesis I loved genesis and so that was a huge awakening for me i was really getting into Prague, and i was turning alex on to the things that my friend oscar was turning on to me and i was listening to more and more Prague rock or symphonic rock as it sometimes was called That was very different from where John's head was at, and he didn't listen to any of those bands. When I went to see Yes, Alex came with me, not John. He was more of a, he loved free, he loved Simon Kirk's drumming, he just had a different taste. He just had different taste. He liked small faces a lot, and his look, in fact, came from a lot of small faces. You know, they were pretty groovy looking. (laughs) I remember when they came to Toronto with Rod Stewart, and ron wood was in the band and they were pretty flash and that was where he wanted to be he wanted to be in that band where alex and i wanted to be in genesis or, mm. or yes
0: i was struck by the fact that you noted that yes was the only band you waited out all night for tickets for and that was when rush already, early days of, of rush even yeah yeah yeah, yeah.
1: i think uh, was, that was i think 72 maybe
0: yeah the only band I ever waited out all night for tickets for, Rush. I will tell oh, you. Really? Yeah, yes, that's true. Jack, <laughs> Thank Jack's, you for that. <laughs> Jack's Music, Red Bank, uh, New Jersey. But And I will tell you that we that I thought maybe we'd get front row tickets. Absolutely not. There was a stack of tickets set aside, and I was in about the 30th row. Oh. <laughs>
1: Even
0: okay. though I was second in line. But you got it. You we were, got in second row, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: We got in second row. That was amazing. But we were right in front of the PA, so it blew our hearing out for days afterwards. And the night before, <laughs> was it the night before or the week? Couple of days before or after, I don't remember now. We drove to Kitchener, Ontario, because they were also playing there. But they got to the, their gear arrived really late. And they, I think they were playing the university at Kitchener Waterloo. And I don't know who drove, but we got a ride there. And John's brother, I think, lived in Kitchener. So we were hanging out at his house. We spent the night at his house and after the gig, and we went. Same kind of thing. They were rush gigs. You went and lined up and then they opened the door and you found your spot. And we got pretty close. Those two gigs represented the most personal discomfort we endured in order to get good seats for a show.
0: What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the -the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all all your bachelor nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more
1: than that. Give me a listen. The reality Steve podcast, part of the believe network. Just search B L E A V on YouTube or wherever you listen.
0: Did you learn? Yes. albums start to finish on base.
1: I tried. I, I couldn't keep up with Chris <laughs> Squires playing. I couldn't play those songs. Really? Yeah. In the early days, no, I could not. So that's made them even more intriguing because they were too complicated to play. You could get your head around a Zep song, and we played some of those, but a Yes song? Wow, they were just beyond our capabilities.
0: And you play with them at the hall of fame yeah. and you said that for for like a minute when you came in you were feeling some of that almost that youthful shyness it was it was oh. a lot to be in that room and
1: it was it was hard walking in that room was one of the most difficult things i ever did wow because they represented so they were they loomed so large in my personal admiration in my history and it was so uncomfortable because they were really two different bands that coming together to do this gig and it was steve howe's kindness that changed all that and then it turned it all around and and i was uh, at ease
0: i was amused at the description of recording caress of steel and basically an enormous cloud of pot smoke it sounds like
1: (laughs) hash oil yes yeah we were way too stoned making that record honest (laughs) to god (laughs) I hear it now. It's not even now. I think it was almost six months after making that record, I listened to it. And what I thought had a lot of reverb and echo was pretty dry. And I was like, what the hell? But it was an important lesson to learn. And I think some of those stupid drug experiences were cautionary. They taught us, you can't be a serious musician if you're fucking around with these drugs when it comes to work. Yeah and sometimes you don't learn that until you make that mistake. For me playing on Acid when I was really young after I was kicked out of Rush. I would never do that again under any circumstance. That was one of the worst experiences of my life.
0: You said that the you had to ignore what was what the audience appeared to be were they like what was it like a, I, a kaleidoscope out there? It the was audience? just
1: it, everything was just blurry. Everything was just trails, right? You know, on Acid you think you see trails i don't know whether they're your brain is fucked up so i couldn't look at them i just had to look i stared at the fingerboard and try to make sure they went in the right place it was horrible the
0: psychoacoustic phenomenon that being high uh, on on hash oil can make you think that there's a reverb that isn't there is fascinating
1: (laughs) yeah it's fascinating and really dumb but But live and learn live and, and learn and we did live and learn
0: and you yeah. did whatever partying you did, horrible verb, whatever partying you did was, even if it ever slipped slightly out of control, was after that, pretty much always kept separate from the music. Well, except for actually. the
1: cocaine years. In the cocaine years, coke was everywhere. And you did that like during the drum solo, you do a line. For me, I never did a... I really didn't try to do any coke before a gig, because I could feel it in my throat, and it was hard, harder... On my voice occasionally maybe after sound check you might do a bump and then you get on with your day but it was mostly towards the end of the night when you felt like you had earned a, a bit of a reward so you'd get high but it's an insidious drug and it really moves quietly and quickly through an entire crew and higher organization and it was very dangerous and it took me a while before i realized the trap i would slipped into thankfully i was well brought up by my mom so <laughs> i realized this is a fucking losing dog. i'm behaving like a losing dog here i have to stop
0: have you ever gone back and found a live recording where holy shit, this is a few <laughs> beats per minute up i think maybe that this was the uh, we naturally were playing yeah. <laughs> too fast
1: Well you listen to our early records like where's the fire guys a lot of those early records i listened to are why didn't the producer say dude, let's take the tempo down a bit. But it was also our style of play. So maybe judging the tempo in retrospect is impossible because I'm not crediting the context of the times and the kind of band we were. So
0: The constant evolution of the band, I think, can be underestimated. It it wasn't just, we can talk about the 80s and the the synth years, but it, it really was... A fairly constant change and growth. It's like you said last night at the event that as soon as people liked something you did, you were on to the next thing. To a certain extent, it is amazing that the the fan base followed you. It's it's such a different thing than now. People aren't really allowed to evolve yeah. that way. It <laughs> but, but
1: it wasn't a straight line. Our career, gra- if you looked at our career graph, it's really <laughs> a really a stormy sea, <laughs> and there were dips in it where we were losing fans. And others where some song connected and brought us more more fans. So I think there was some stagnancy in the numbers of fans that came to see us because we'd lose some and gain others. And I, I love it when I meet fans that loved our keyboard period. Like I met a guy, he's a famous keyboardist, Mike Dean. That was the guy, yeah. Mike Dean. He's a dude, he's a man. He's got studio work and credits, he's a producer, he's very successful. He saw me on a plane and he just flipped out. And he came up to me and he wrote me this note on those little napkins you get on the (laughs) airplane. And he said, Man, I would not be in the music business if it wasn't for that period and all the keyboard work you did. And and then I thanked him and he sent me his email address or something. And he said, I got to show you this picture. And it's a friend of his that has a studio that had completely built a version of my keyboard gear from that crazy period that was identical pedals and the whole effing deal but really nice guy and he was so humble and he just was so respectful and i walked away i went i see there weren't all rockers that hated the keyboard period some of our fans were born into that keyboard period so that that made me feel good
0: there's so much great music from that period and it started Before the keyboards, with the reaction to Hemispheres, once you start to get tighter and more song-oriented, the two things happen together. Yeah. It is amazing to me, with Hemispheres, that we've talked about the fact that you had written the songs in the wrong key and didn't realize it until it was time to do the vocals. But what's amazing is listening back to it, you did hit the notes. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I stayed in that fucking vocal booth until I got them. And that's why I wanted to kill Terry, because he kept making me do it over and over again until I hit the notes, which was his job. He was doing the right thing, because there's no way the the album would ever be finished if I didn't hit the notes. So I had to stay there. I had to stretch my range. And it was incredibly frustrating for me. It was just really hard. The hardest vocals I've ever had to do on a, on a record, by far.
0: And then if we're talking about the sort of keyboard period, there's a whole series of great albums in the 80s that went in that direction. Signals, Power Windows, Grace Under Pressure. And then by the time you got to Hold Your Fire, I think you were so deep in that direction, it's like you've gone straight down a tunnel. You can't even see the way behind you. And it's interesting, some of my favorite Rush songs are on that album. Force Ten, which I believe was the last thing you wrote for that album, kind of last minute. And then time stands still, which only gets more moving for me as each year goes by.
1: It's a different kind of sentiment. Who who rock? Who sings about? Growing old and wanting to stop time.
0: Yeah, it was a middle-aged song in a way. It was a stretch to put Amy Man on it. It was like your. It was really the your the most pop rush song in a way.
1: Yeah, in a way that maybe in New World Man.
0: But I would say that there's moments on Hold Your Fire you almost forget that you were, this was a hard rock band at some point. And that's why on, on Presto you realized you started what was a multi-album journey back mm-hmm. to hard rock. Part of what's so interesting about the arc is it goes, like mm-hmm. you said, it's not a straight line at all.
1: And it came from an, an unexpected source because hiring Rupert Hine, finally getting to work with Rupert, who was a keyboard player himself and, and had his own experience in prog music, I expected him to reinforce some of that, and yet he was determined to strip down that sound. So maybe it was obvious to everyone but me that we required some stripping down, and we had gone, as you say, too far down that tunnel.
0: And it's interesting, you talked to Alex, you kind of interviewed Alex about a bunch of things for this, (laughs) (laughs) and for the first time, you really found out how, you you, kind of knew, I mean, he's talked about it before, that it was hard for him to because you know it becomes a, a a matter of almost sonic real estate yeah a synth has can be enormous on a record and there literally can leave just on a practical level that th- there's not many frequencies left f- yeah. for the guitar i know so no, this- and
1: i didn't realize how obnoxious i'd become <laughs> i really didn't and when he told me that story I, I was embarrassed and shocked i never saw myself as having really become a bit of a sonic dictator in that regard but i had I was so into the keyboard sounds and they dominated and I was learning so much from working with guys like Andy Richards. But it was such an exciting time in the world of keyboards. All the most interesting music was keyboard driven in that period. And there was always a new device to learn. And it was really demanding. And as I've said, Many times keyboards are terrible for your sense of humor because they require so much uptake. You've got to really understand all these knobs and how to use them and how to get the sound that doesn't isn't on every record. Every time a new record a new keyboard would come out. Everyone was racing. It was like the space race. Everyone was racing to have that song on their record before forty Records came out with the same song. And it was a real point of pride in studios, especially the studios in England. You came in to record a record with your little Weasley Roland sound. They went, wow, that's an old hat song. You can't use that sound. That sounds here. That sounds there. So It was a challenging period, but I was incredibly stimulated by it all. And I wanted to grasp it and understand it. And then it was pointed out to me that I was drowning the band in it. And we had lost something about that essential trio that I always used to say to engineers, must be heard. You know, I used to say when we make a record, doesn't matter how much stuff we have on it, you got to hear the trio. And I had obscured that without realizing it by being so synthesizer-centric.
0: I loved your description, because I think one of the things that people always wondered is, on stage, is how could you do that? In other words, there was a period when you were literally using every available limb to do something on stage yeah. bass pedals basically synth based sounds they were triggering with your feet so sometimes if you're playing synth you would be doing bass with your feet at the mm-hmm. same time and even just singing while playing your bass parts was hard enough yeah and but what you said is it was, it was all about an extreme form of, of muscle memory you would rehearse everything to the point where you didn't have to think about it but then it sounds like the downside was and it's hard to imagine this that you rehearsed to the point where it was so easy that your mind would drift.
1: Yes. Yeah. Like I make the joke and my wife thinks I can't multitask because I can't prepare an appetizer and a main course at the same time. But the brain has amazing potential, really. And if Rush stood for anything, it stood for the determination and the evidence of what rehearsal can do for you. And rehearsal is the key. If you learn your instrument and you play it, over and over again. You can retain it. And a part of your brain knows to do that. That frees up another part of your brain to sing. And most of the time in my career, the thing I think about the most while I'm playing three instruments is singing because it's really hard. And it's the only instrument that's not automatically tuned. You have to find the key. You have to hear the key. And in many of those venues, it's almost impossible to hear key. If a room is tuned to a different note, you get these overtones and it throws the key center off. You know, the tone center is thrown off. And so you're struggling to hear that tone center, or if you get too much bottom end, it makes the song sound as if it's in one key, but in fact, it's not. And so it's the toughest part of the gig is singing A in, in key and hearing yourself And then doing all the other stuff. When in ear monitors came along, and I know this is a bit technical, but when in ear monitors came along, it changed my life. I mean, it completely changed my life because I could have Alex's guitar tamely processed so that I could hear very clearly a dinky, clean sounding version of what he was playing at all times. And I could hear the tone center. So my pitch improved overnight. And I didn't have to stress about that. So my hands were and mind were free to be more creative and more flexible and improvise on bass parts. And I stopped being rigid in that regard.
0: When did we hear that? When was that?
1: Oh, man, that, God, it's hard to pinpoint that. I have to. Read Early nights, maybe? Yeah, probably.
0: Is it, if you hear, I love the live album, Different Stages. Mm-hmm. And that's just, you guys are absolutely amazing on that record and you sound very free on the bass yeah
1: that might have been when we had in-ears you can tell by the amount of feedback on a live (laughs) record if there's no feedback at all
0: it's very clean that one the time off that you've had how has that affected your voice when you've tried to sing recently for example at the taylor hawkins thing or or privately do you find that that the time off the road has
1: lent new power to your voice it, it's definitely not long layoffs are not good for your voice mm, okay because you just lose the resilience you have to build up a resistance especially if you sing high even just doing this talking tour i'm a rehearsal freak so i rehearsed for talking i'll, I'll tell you a story so i'm not going to mention his name because i want him to be a surprise one of the guest hosts real is character And when I asked him, he was thrilled. And he he just picked up the phone and he called me. I said, I'm rehearsing. He goes, what are you rehearsing? I said, I'm rehearsing for the book tour. How do you fucking rehearse a book tour? What are you, practicing reading? I said, no, it's hard to explain. But even doing that, I think you can hear my voice is a bit hoarse today. Mm. It feels like I've been singing, but I haven't. I've just been talking too much. Uh, And that came from doing all these readings day after day and getting the emphasis right and working on that so that I was comfortable. And I could tell a story up there without stuttering or it being hard for an audience to follow along. So rehearsal is the key to everything, man. Like if you're a performer, it's great to be spontaneous. It's great that I find it's much easier to be spontaneous. If you've rehearsed so much that you can play the song in your sleep, then you can play it differently without fear of Coming back to the right spot. So, I think it makes it easier for you to improvise than if you're just always improvising. Now, if you look at jazz players, different story, because what they do is they study the instrument itself, not the song, and they rehearse the instrument so much and get their technique so effing down pat that they look at the neck, the bass, or the keys. There are no blank spaces there, right? There are zero blank spaces. They know every key, every, what's the word? There are these uh, modes. Modes, yeah. They know every mode. Yeah. And they know how to cross from one mode into another mode. And that's brilliant. And that's all improvisational, but you can't improvise to that degree unless you know that neck inside out and by rote. So it's a different kind of study, right? Rock songs and our type of really structured music required repetition and knowing the structure, whereas jazz requires a knowledge of the, the keyboard or the neck that is without fail, without blank spots.
0: You said that the Tower Hawkins tribute performance it was almost like the end of your, your, your Shiva for, for Neil, in a yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting way to look at it.
1: I didn't realize at the time. It was only in retrospect, because I had I was so off at that show, the L.A. show. I wasn't myself. At the London show, the Wembley show, I was celebratory. I was honoring Taylor at the same time. I was playing, again, songs I loved and playing with new people, and the atmosphere at that gig was just magic. There was so much love. I know it sounds corny, but there really was so much love in that building. At Wembley, it was the most special gig I think I've ever done in my life in that regard. Every artist, artists I didn't know, they were all there for the same reason. There was no no ego. There was no hint of competitiveness. And I just I found it really rejuvenating. I really found it filled me up and I realized I've missed this. I miss playing. And I love being in this atmosphere where every musician is rooting for the other musician. But when I got to LA, I didn't feel the same. I just there was something about being in that building that was really disturbing me and I couldn't put my nail my I couldn't figure it out until I walked on stage and realized that this was returning to the scene of the crime.
0: The last Russia, yeah. Yeah, Yeah.
1: and it just all fell together, and I realized, okay, this is the end of this period for me. I have to look at the grief. The grief has to end, and something else has to replace it, and what do you replace that with is with remembrance and uh, respect and homage.
0: You said that uh, Paul McCartney came up to you, too, (laughs) and congratulated you and and said you should get back on the road.
1: Dave was so sweet. He comes up to us at rehearsal and he goes, Paul McCartney's up next to rehearse and he's outside. And he said to me, Dave, I've never met anyone from Rush before. And I said, I've never met him. Bring him in, please. And he came in. He's yeah. just a very lovely man, very positive person. He, Did you get
0: the sense that he knew your music?
1: No, but I got the sense, <laughs> I got the sense he knew who we were yeah. and had heard about us, but he, wouldn't, he right. never listened to us. And, and so at the show, he was there. He watched yeah. the set. And I think it was, he was really curious because I think people probably had mentioned us to him and it was like, oh, my kind of music. Might. <laughs> but after the show, I, he was incredible. He was so warm and so embracing and so positive. And he came and sat and drank with us. We all got plastered together and <laughs> he was very emphatic, talking about, you know, you know what Ringo always says? It's what we do. And I said, talk to Al. Because he's the stubborn one. Yeah. And so he was lecturing Al about how great it is to tour and you have to do it, man, and you have to get back out there, man. And Alex said something like, I'll do it if you'll be our manager or something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sure, I'll manage you, mate. It was really fun, really funny, but he had a point. That's the way he looks at life. He's ageless because he really truly believes he was born to do this. That's what you do and you just do it. You don't question it. And I think we all sometimes forget that.
0: Al, I know he had those, he had stomach issues and he had another surgery for it, right? Yeah. Is his stubbornness based around that?
1: No, He's rightly has some health issues. He has arthritis as well. It's harder for him to reproduce those solos in the way that he wants to, but he's also, he was never super happy in the last few tours on the road. He always had to I think that's why he played so much golf, because he gets bored so quickly. For me, I would hold up in my room, and I would work on photo albums. Like, I would play with my bird photography. I would play with my... It's a hobby of photography, so I would make these books. And so I was occupied I'm quite happy, because I knew that I had to stay quiet. I couldn't talk. So all day long, I would work on my photo books and my photography. And in the evening, I would meet Al after he's played 14 rounds of golf, and he would have dinner and drink too much wine. And then the next day was gig day. But I think being away and touring is more difficult for him to be happy. So that's a stumbling block. And at this stage of his life, considering that he has some concerns about his health, it's very hard for him to get his head around an idea of doing a tour. I keep working on him.
0: If you just shake him fiercely... (laughs) I mean, you said something I, I thought it was interesting, which is that it's still in the cards. It's conceivable to you that you could go out and call yourself
1: Rush. I don't know that that's 100% true. I don't know how comfortable we would be doing that calling ourselves Rush. And it's all speculation because honestly, it's unlikely to happen. That's a conversation for probably another time. But we might not be super comfortable, but we could always call ourselves some other stupid name or rash. Lee, Lee and Lifeson sounds nice. He so, sounds nice. I mean, Lee and Lifeson play the songs of Rush. That's, that really sounds like an old fart 80s band.
0: <laughs> Nonetheless, that sounds like a sold out arenas sold out to me. I mean, <laughs> it would be an opportunity perhaps to finally theoretically get a keyboard player get a so, oh, and, yeah. and do it and break the rules that you'd set out for yourself. Yeah,
1: I think if we were to do it again, for sure, it wouldn't be just a three piece because we'd have to find a way to make it more fun, less work. And Pay some acknowledgement to the fact that we're a little bit older now.
0: It would be a lot of pressure to put one drummer on that stage. It could be a drummer and a percussionist. It could be two drummers. There's a, a lot of things you could try to do to take the pressure off that, whoever that person is. Brian,
1: there yeah. are endless possibilities. It, I agree, but it's all hypothetical. It's all hypothetical.
0: And then how about two other things, which is how about new music, whether with or without a tour from, from you and Alex in some form? And how about, if not, how about a, a solo album?
1: Both of those things are possible. Like I read recently where I'm planning to do another solo album. I've never said I'm planning to do another solo. I haven't planned anything. I'm planning to survive this book tour. And then I'm planning to go on a holiday with my wife. Beyond that, I don't have anything planned. Would I like to write some more music now? Yes, I would. I'm ready for that. Does Alex want to write some more music with me? Yes, he does. He's made that very clear. And that's something I will try to do with him over the coming year. Would I like to write some songs on my own? Yes, I would. Again, it's something I would like to try over the coming year. And that's all I know. That's all I've planned. Nothing's in the works, but this glorious thing of possibility exists. And I think Al and I owe it to each other to have a serious sit down and play together and see what happens. And maybe all this hypothetical crap that we talked about, maybe that'll disappear if we get really excited. Or maybe it won't but i don't i'm not banking on it and rush fans sh- certainly should not bank on it. there's always hope are your chops up have you
0: been playing? my
1: chops ch- chops are not up right now i'm <laughs> sorry to admit that i've been talking i've been using this to yeah. talk this throat of mine and i have not been playing enough and i'm sad to say that my fingers are getting soft but that's going to change
0: fair enough always a pleasure
1: great talking to you always Congratulations I, I really to the do program. enjoy uh, these interviews. They're fun. Same here. Thank you.
0: And that's our show. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, subscribe to Rolling Stone Music Now, wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us five stars and a nice review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, because that's always appreciated. But as always, thanks so much for listening, and we will see you next week.